This episode is dedicated to Kateri Hohola for becoming our newest Southpaw supporter and helping to make this project possible. We are back with Southpaw Deep Space Nine, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a socialist, communist, liberatory perspective, episode by episode. This is Sam. I'm watching DS9 with fresh eyes. And Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are working our way through season one and are now in the final third of the season. This is episode 16 on Netflix because the first episode was a two-parter and Netflix released it as one two-hour episode, which is why it's different from how it's listed elsewhere. Scott, can you introduce this episode for us? I'd love to, Sam. The Forsaken opens up with some Federation ambassadors visiting for a trip. A big thing going on in season one of Deep Space Nine is this wormhole. What's going on with it? <laughs> We've never seen it. Why is it here? So a lot of episodes, the crux is something goes on with the wormhole. It works. <laughs> so our friend Bashir, who's had some emotional growth since last episode, uh, who's also trying to find his way in the Federation, meets with ambassadors Lojala Vulcan, Vados- Vadosia Abolian, and Taxco and Arbazian. And there's also Ambassador Lawaxana Troy, Betasoid, and a telepathic person who is also the mother of Star Trek The Next Generation's Diana Troy. We see her in Quark's bar. She's missing her brooch. It's part latinum. She's had it for mad generations. She immediately suggests that Quark may be the culprit because her people cannot read Ferengi minds and Ferengi often come off as guilty looking, which if you know Quark, that's sort of like Quark's quirk. I'll try to not do terrible alliterations like that, but (laughs) sometimes, you know, if the brooch fits, wear it. Yeah, I did that too. Two of those. Um, (laughs) I'm... Two for two, two for two, Tuesday, and it's not even a Tuesday. So Odo sort of, you know, doing a little bit of uh, character scanning, and he catches a character in the bar who looks to him to be shady, and he says, because they have DNA similar to Ferengi. (laughs) Hmm. I have some issues with Odo this episode, but we'll get to those later. Loaxana who is known to be flirtatious, adventurous, and open, is immediately drawn to Odo. She's like, ooh, this this fella like, is just like really silent, not that interested in me, knows what he's doing, just has a lot of mystery, looks different. And then, as what's been going on a lot with this idea that Terok Nor, which is now Deep Space Nine, has a lot of Cardassian engineering, you notice that Miles Miles O'Brien almost every week is dealing with some engineering issues. 
and O'Brien is getting mad at a computer. He <laughs> wants to build the computer back, but supposedly it's going to take a long time because it's Cardassian tech, and there's all types of words that I don't understand, but something about hacking the mainframe. Now, we meet the, we meet the ambassadors, and some of them are dissatisfied with their treatment and accommodations. They feel like they're not being treated in a way becoming of ambassadors. You know, good old, like, class war shit. And then something happens with the wormhole. A spaceship comes from the wormhole. That's it. That's the whole thing. One of the ambassadors says when he sees the when he sees the wormhole, uh, nonplussed by such a magical thing. And so then the Vulcan tries to mansplain to Dax. Bashir again <laughs> showing some new education is like, yo, don't do that. Dax is like 300, 400 years old. Don't like, don't let this vision make you think that they don't know. They know, they know what's up. And <laughs> you're just seeing this growing respect. I think he's, I don't like this term friend zone because I think there's a lot of problems there, but I think he's accepted the friend zoning right now and is just doing his thing. And Odo is just working and Lawaxana calls Odo over and says something which I will go to later, says the thin beige line between order and chaos. This line fucked with me, man. I got to tell you, pardon my language. Did you catch it the first time you watched it or you only caught it this time because you have to actually prepare for this? So when I rewatched the Deep Space Nine recently, I skipped this episode. So I hadn't caught on to that line. And when I had watched it many years ago, I only knew about the Errol Morris documentary, The Thin Blue Line, but I also can't honestly remember if I had seen it at the time. But this time I was like, wait, wait, wait. And I'm having a lot of trouble with Odo as a character in season one in many ways. And that line by Luoxa, Luoxa and Troy, we will, we will be talking about that line later because we have like Luoxana is an empath, but unlike her daughter, Deanna Troy, who is a therapist, counselor, more even keeled, uses her empathy to try to help people. Luoxana Troy is just, she's just trying to live it up. She has this persona of going for it. And there's many outrageous episodes of the next generation that she's in. So Luoxana wants to have an entanglement with Odo. She is sexually intrigued by his behavior, his biology. I feel like she's exotifying him a little bit. And O'Brien notices that the computer is starting to fix itself. And wonders if it's connected to the ship that showed up that has nothing in it, just like computers and drones. And the drone is connecting to the interface in the computer and something's going on. And Odo is confused by Luoxana's advances, but Cisco is like, yo, like, what's up? Like, how's about some romance? And Odo is like, I have no time for this. Mating is unnecessary. All of this fun, love, connection. Who needs all of that? We all do. 
He says, I understand crime, not emotion. Uh, so this probe computer is is going on. Odo says this uh, sentence that really helps understand his character in season one. I don't handle delicacy very well. And Luoxana invites Odo to a hollow suite for some fun. She's highly suggesting that would be of the physical nature. That's sort of her thing. She's definitely got like a Blanche Devereaux Golden Girls vibe. <laughs> and and we rock with, I, I don't know about you, Sam, but I rock with the Golden Girls. I fuck with Golden Girls. I have some issues with Luoxana, but I, I also like her. And she's she's fun. She's got an outrageous vibe to her. And they're on the elevator to the hollow suite and they get caught and they can't transport for some reason. <laughs> Odo's like, I don't I don't want to talk. Just leave me alone. But Luoxana cannot help herself. And so they start talking about their experience. And then we see Bashir, who is miserable with the ambassadors, and he's talking to Cisco saying, this is miserable, this is not going to help me move forward in my position. And Cisco then reveals that, you know, if you remember, he used to work under Curzon Dax, who was the previous holder of the Dax symbiote before Jadzia, hence Cisco calling Jadzia old man. And when he was there, he was, he was the ambassador guy, and he punched one out, and he's doing pretty good. <laughs> pretty well, pretty great. I don't know. Grammar, grammar can be a form of oppression in its own right. <laughs> so then the computer system, which was supposed to take years to fix because of the Cardassian tech, it fixes itself. And it's posited that the probe may have changed the computer and the computer, the software may be beckoning Miles. Every time Miles tries to leave, something goes on with the computer. Miles, Miles, come back here, man. And he realizes that the program might be lonely. It might be a child. Maybe there's something going on with this software slash AI, what have you. And as Odo and Luoxana are in the elevator, time is passing. And as you know, at a certain amount of hours, Odo starts to dematerialize into a liquid. And he's starting to slowly dematerialize. And the ambassadors are cons are continuing to be difficult. And I was very much reminded of my days working at the service, working in service industry. If the boss's aunt came in and, and was like, ah, why is everything this way? The ice is too cold. <laughs> the ice is cold, man. That's what I'm saying. And and I, I don't really even like ice, but, well, that's a strong statement. In my drink, I don't like a lot of ice. I find it to be a roadblock. When I've encountered other cultures that drink lukewarm water, I'm like, oh, this is genius. <laughs> so Odo is trying to discern the difference between lonely and self-sufficiency, and he's getting closer and closer to turning to a liquid. And then where the ambassadors are, there's a plasma fire. Cisco and Kira, who are not really stars of the episode, are trying to get in. Miles and Jadzia are having a conversation about helplessness and possible hopelessness of the software entity, that this, this software, this semi-sentient software probe computer thing has been so lonely 
and has probably feels some sort of helplessness and hopelessness. But Miles realizes that, oh, there, this is not a malevolent software. There, it's really not, there's nothing wrong with it. So he builds, as he calls, like a clubhouse, or was it a doghouse or a treehouse, some sort of house for the software to be where it can just run free and not affect the firmware or the software or the, or the technology of the station. And Odo is starting to disintegrate, and he's trying to pretend that he's not embarrassed. And it's an emotion that he hasn't really shown um, in the show. And while I think we could possibly retcon that Odo might be non-binary or gender fluid, um, Odo goes by he in the show, so I'm working with that. So then Luoxana shares that as as Odo is disintegrating, she shows that her her wig is actually not her actual hair. She has like regular hair. And they share a moment about being open and real and being. And Luoxana says everyone has some otherness about them. And this for 1990 standards, this was probably like, oh, this is deep. But at the very least, like comparing like hair color and like body otherness is hardly the same. And he becomes liquid, but Lawaxana really holds for him. And she holds like literally and, and emotionally. I was talking about the emotional action of holding for people, creating a safe space to take in and hold others' emotions and be there. And, but also literally is holding Odo in the dress. And I, and you know, one thing I, th- I wanted to do just to do a shout out to, to Angel is that, uh, in this episode, Bashir is not Dr. Horny, but Lawaxana is Ambassador Horny. So <laughs> I just thought that'd be, you know, again, not the language I sort of use. I was like, I was thinking of Angel rewatching the show. So I wanted to give a little like, hey, comrade. <laughs> I think the writers were also trying to do a visual joke in that scene, even though it was a touching moment, because... Odo literally melts into a puddle in her lap, which is, you know, that saying, right? When you're in love, you melt into a puddle. Yo, that's totally true. And I never even considered that part because I was just like, oh, this is reaching a little bit. This is like touching on like some like Victor Frankl or like existential therapy, like how close can one person actually be to another? And that's pretty close physically. So, yeah. That was that was a good call. I think because he is a shapeshifter, they could have fun and actually literally do some of those love metaphors with Odo. Yes, it totally works. And the computer makes a subprogram for the probe and the computer station starts working again miraculously at the at the 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 end mark. And we find out that ever, that the ambassadors were really impressed with Bashir. He showed some hero instinct he protected them they're recommending him for some stuff luoxana and odo actually have a touching moment about sensitivity and discretion and tenderness but luoxana still throws away like hey the next time i see you like kind of want to you know get to know you biblically (laughs) and the probe becomes part of the computer and 
then we see the closing credits. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Something you mentioned at the outset is about that probe coming in. We later find out is some kind of alien life form. And it seems like alien babies are a common theme in Star Trek, whatever form they may come in. I think it's also a trope in space opera um, in general, space babies and (laughs) space babies is a trope. Yeah. You got like baby Yoda, you got Superman, you have. Goku, you know, space babies. That's the thing. Because there is that whole thing, right? If something was really powerful, but it had a mind of a baby, you know, how destructive would it be? Yeah. And when they realize that this is a childish, childlike baby in, in an early development cycle, they're like, oh, they're, they're just like trying to do their thing. Basically, we found out that the baby is artificial intelligence. And this episode dealt with AI in an interesting way, kind of a different, almost original way, especially for its time, because where it's most often portrayed as dangerous superintelligence, in this episode, the AI was more primitive and animal-like, right? It was demoted from baby to a puppy. (laughs) But they showed that that comes with its own problems and dangers. And I remember AI scientists often warn people everybody's afraid of the super intelligent ai that'll take over the world but what's probably more dangerous is a very powerful ai which is not super intelligent and which is very clumsy and incompetent oh yeah totally i i just also thought they handled this really well in and i also think it like really connects with some of the ways that we're experiencing the internet now and how the, the computer is a, as a system is also part of like a system of agreements and environment and also can be a tool of liberation in the way that we use the internet to connect and through signal or through discord or through meetups. And it could obviously be a form of oppression or censorship. And I'm not going to be like, talk about other countries. I could just talk about how if you search things on Google versus searching on DuckDuckGo or any other search engine, it is a curated search engine that has to do with ways that can lead to, in my opinion, negative endeavors. And I think of, are you familiar with the whole Earth catalog? No. So it was like an American counterculture magazine that was produced like in the 60s where people just shared, you know, the editorial was about self-sufficiency and and do-it-yourself and ecology and ways to make the world a better place. And you could, they would review products and you would share it with other people. And a lot of people call it like a precursor to the internet. And I think some of the people that were inspired by Linux 
or Unix or one of them, definitely one of them, were also inspired by the the whole earth catalog. It's very fascinating to think of what you could think the internet to be in a pre-internet world. My dear friend Snafu said a few years ago, he's like, I read in Japan that some scientists are trying to come up with an alternative to the internet. And I was like, uh, what? And I think especially in the future, you can't disconnect them. The whole earth catalog, as well as many of the early types of internet, the chat boards, the IIRCs, the early forums, were connecting us and realizing that individuals together can create strange strength. And as the internet grows, we sometimes go for simplicity. You know, the you know, become a Patreon of Southpaw because the Discord is <laughs> popping. I really love the Discord, especially as I've been getting more involved. But what does the Discord resemble? It resembles the 90s. It resembles AOL chat rooms. The simplicity of it just works. It remember it resembles web forums. So going back to uh what we've been talking about a lot with Ambassador Troy and Odo. Do we think Ambassador Troy is sexually harassing Odo? Odo even had to go to Cisco to have that talk with the boss about sexual harassment, right? I I would say that it was definitely a you could report that incident as sexual harassment and then could look at it. Uh I would say is on the on the lower scale I seem lower scale for what you've seen on the show so far. Yeah. Yeah, compared to Dr. B. <laughs> but I think they're also trying to play on that idea of flipping the script on him because he usually comes off as the powerful authority and she's the one asserting her authority over him. Totally. And again, I think in in the 90s context that was considered is a little that was considered like oh that's edgy that's cool yeah that's different i do remember that time where back then it was much more like if a woman sexually harasses a man it didn't read the way it did today maybe it doesn't even still read that way fully this idea that a man can get sexually harassed it usually came off as like making the woman look cool edgy to your point the episode is cool and edgy you know, she's a strong character, that kind of way. So maybe it read differently back then and also meant to read funny. I think that was a common trope in the 90s and even more before, where if the man was put into a situational comedy, right, that usually women are in, that's meant to be funny. Yeah. And again, I, I think they were building upon like a Blanche Devereaux sort of thing, which was considered charming at the time. And again, there are double standards in in these sort of things at least to many people and until you said it i didn't think of it as it but when you did say it i said oh yeah that tracks I, <laughs> if if i was in a workplace environment and my and like that's not even my boss that's like my boss's 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 boss was making advances i would feel very uncomfortable by the power dynamic and yeah, because you have all these other sort of flirty characters that are that are being introduced, like obviously uh, Doctor B and and Garrick, and then you have this foil being like, "Hey there, let's let's get down to some funny business." So 
Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Going back to Odo having to talk to Cisco, the back and forth between Cisco and Odo reminded me a bit of Data from The Next Generation, where it's the character that's most detached from humanity being encouraged by a human to develop human emotions. For Cisco, he finds it amusing because he's like, here's your chance to develop some human emotions, connect with humanity, maybe your own internal humanity, because maybe Cisco has been observing him and sees humanity in him like other humanoids, but he's been suppressing it and thinks this could be an opportunity for him to let some of that out, right? Again, maybe not so much formula, but space and having a show in the future in space gives the writers an opportunity to write characters that have to explore humanity with fresh eyes, right? Like I'm exploring DS9 with fresh eyes because I've never seen it before. So then in seeing it through somebody's eyes who's never experienced it before, you might learn something new or you might be able to make some kind of new commentary about it. I'm really enjoying unpacking through this this form. And when we were talking about you are, We Are Not Our Thoughts last week and In Wishes Were Horses and how thoughts are powerful, then the next day I'm in therapy and we're talking about We Are Not Our Thoughts. And I, and I, I texted you a picture of it because it's just very interesting. And they didn't play to this so much in this episode, but Luoxana Troy and, and her daughter, Deanna Troy, are particular are particularly good at reading people's minds, which makes or feeling people they they don't tend to do that. But what Deanna Troy is really good at as a counselor is her ability for the empathy and to explain, you know, that we are not our thoughts. That's also something we've seen before, where characters who are good at reading other characters, reading their emotions sometimes get attracted to characters like Data or characters like Odo. Their inability to know them is what attracts them to them more. We've seen that more often in The Next Generation because there's more episodes of that. But again, we're seeing that a little bit with Odo where his mystery, his ability to be a vacuum for characters that gain power from being able to read other characters intrigues them. I think Quark in his own way is able to read people and his inability to read Odo also intrigues him. And so Odo almost comes off as an alternate version of Data, where Data is detached from humanity, and if programmed or made a different way, he could have been like Odo. There's definitely, that I can think of off the top of the dome, like the the triumvirate of, you know, Spock, Data, and Odo, these characters that are defined by these rigid ideals of logic and literalism and questioning, but they're all three very different archetypes and characters and have different ways of of how they express that. There are three different archetypes of androids. They cannot break their protocols because they're programmed, right? So to your point, Vulcans are very rigid and they follow these codes. Code in this way means two different things, right? Code as in moral code, but also code as in computer code, neither of which can be broken. So it's both of those meanings, right? And data is the same way, except he's trying to learn to be 
flexible. And then Odo, Odo is the opposite. He doesn't want to learn to be flexible. Everybody tries to get him to be flexible and he wants to remain rigid. So that's why I see a parallel between him and Data. But also he's like an Android, right? He's like what we've already seen before with the T-1000, right? We've seen liquid shape-shifting cop androids before. So that is another trope. So he is a different type of Android, you know, liquid metal shape-shifting trope that we've seen. Except with the T-1000, we saw no hope. They were never going to change. Whereas in Odo, he doesn't want to change, but we feel like he's eventually going to lose that battle. He doesn't want to change because he knows he is changing. And he's a shapeshifter who doesn't want to change. So that's the irony to the whole thing as well. Yeah, unlike Data, who's who's like, let me experience life. I'm confused by it all, but I want it. I want to figure it out. But so to go back to the the sentence that really bugged me out, when Luoxana calls Odo the thin beige line between order and chaos, it is very hard for me to not think about the blue line. And the argument that a lot of people have is, is Odo a cop? And where does Odo fit into oppression and subjugation of, of people? He was a cop during the Cardassian occupation. He, he claims that it's not about good or bad, it's about rules, but you know, there's all just because something is a rule or a law doesn't mean that you need to follow it. Obviously, letter from a Birmingham jail. Martin Luther King says that, you know, in during during the Holocaust, their Nazi agendas were legal. But does that mean that they must be? Now I'm not saying that Odo is a space Nazi, but he might have been a space Nazi uh, collaborator. You know, the Cardassians are definitely analogs to, you know, in my opinion, what what the what the Turkish did to the Armenians, um, what the Germans did to the Jews, um, also in in some ways of there's definitely some some Israel Palestinian conflict. Well, you just have colonial violence in general, right? Settler colonialism, colonialism, colonial violence. Yeah. What's interesting to me though is when she said it, it was meant as a compliment. And we as the viewer, if we go back to that time, if we don't project backwards, we were supposed to also take it as a compliment. And the writers were writing for an audience that they assumed was pro-cop and that the writers themselves were also pro-cop. Oh, yeah. And around the time, this was before the Abner Louima issue and, you know, Amadou Diallo and other instances of that where the shift started to change were like, you know, this is like in the Serpico, I mean, the Serpico era lasted a long time. Like, oh, there are bad cops, but there's many more good cops like Serpico trying to change from within. This was peak copaganda era too. There were so many cop shows too. So many cop shows and the way that the, that the justice system is created in this in this in this country does not make people safe except for the rich or the powerful 
is not salubrious to liberation. <laughs> salubrious. <laughs> yes. Sometimes okay. I got to use that those uh, those extra Latinum words, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's this like, you know, I was I was reading I was rereading neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah, and you know how like how his idea back in the '60s was that this neocolonialism of today would hopefully is looking at imperialism in the the last form. Uh, which could also be the most dangerous form. And there are pulses in which that is happening right now. And I forget from the lore of Star Trek how they dealt with that as they started interacting with other aliens. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. The thing, my, my little spiel about going into Odo and understanding Odo, he presents this pragmatic standpoint of romance being a waste of time. But then as he's getting more and more pain and he shows some vulnerability, his isolation is a form of protection. It's a coping strategy. And sometimes like there's this argument against collectivism, socialism, community, mutual aid, that it's the death of the individual. And like the random, like Ayn Rand, uh, Ayn, Ayn Rand, whatever the fuck, extreme of tree, of true free individuality at any cost. But this is so far from the truth. You know, mutual aid society community celebrates that we are all special and important and individuals pieces of a structure and that we need each other to thrive. The myth of individualism can be looked at like in Paulo Freire's ideas of pedagogy, that if knowledge is only looked at as a gift bestowed upon us, it can be hard to be shared, thus making learning lonely and tiered and and part of different forms of power and oppression. And Odo is afraid to be part of something bigger. He, the rugged individualist denies himself and does not allow the opportunity of community and joy. But even as early as 1902, scientists were writing and arguing that cooperation and mutual aid is intrinsically part of uh, the human process. So I find this rugged individualism, but also this cop thing, just just is not natural to me. I think he also exemplifies the contradiction of individualism and how white-centric it can be. Because Odo, to your point that you brought up a couple of times, he essentializes races, right? So then he collectivizes them. He doesn't see them as individuals. He sees them as one group and this one person as representative of the whole group. So individualism does that. 
it constantly essentializes themselves. I'm this, which represents all of that. So the term is called individualism. That's what they think of themselves as, but they're constantly stereotyping. They're constantly essentializing not only themselves, but also others. And that's why individualism is overlapped with whiteness because oftentimes whites can be individuals, right? But then a black person, a black friend is not an individual because whatever they believe, if they give their racism a pass, then now they're a representative of the whole group. Or if there's a person of color who has a bad take, now they represent the whole group, right? So individualism, who can be individuals in this picture, right? So individualists is always associated with racism because individualism always essentializes, always collectivizes, is always groups and gathers except for themselves. That person is the only one who gets to be an individual. Whereas what we call collectivism, these types of socialist movements and thinking is always trying to be anti-oppressive, anti-essentializing, right? Anti-one person representing the whole because everybody gets to be an individual. So it's actually the terms can be confusing, but collectivism tries to liberate us as people, whereas individualism makes everybody into stereotypes. Right. And have you listened to Young Jeezy at all? No. So Young Jeezy is a rapper from Atlanta who sort of, you know, is part of the the trap like trap movement in the aughts. And I always found his music to be really interesting because it's really collectivist at its core. And my friend Cavalier pointed this out to me that pretty much in the first album, he almost never says I or me in the entire album. It's always like, let's get this. We can do this, you know? And but and it does not take away his identity. It's just it's not. And I think if you look at nature, there is nothing more well, there's plenty of things more natural than mutual aid and community support, but it is it is part of it. It is part of us. And I think he starts to see that a little bit, Odo, in this episode. So I, there are some there are some good character beats in this episode that I hadn't thought twice about in 20 years. <laughs> so another major character in this episode is the guest star, Ambassador Troy. And she comes off as this open-minded, enlightened white person where she's open-minded to other races. It's a trope that was very popular in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, is becoming less popular now because we see how problematic it is of this enlightened white person who's open to sexual partners of other races, right? Look who's coming to dinner style. Like, oh, look, I'm enlightened and open-minded. I have a black boyfriend, right? So the trope has a certain earnestness to it, but it's also problematic because... It's almost saying like, to quote Angel, right, with regards to the term horniness, it's saying horniness knows no color, which reminds me of something some people say, which they think makes them enlightened and more equitable. But it's problematic also when they say, I don't care what color you are as long as you're hot. But that then is also creating a hierarchy of beauty. It's also its own bigotry. It's like saying, uh, you know, I don't care what color you are as long as you're rich, you know, or money doesn't care what color you are. It's this way of saying something really problematic can be blind to color 
because there's a certain purity in this problematicness, right? And so at the time, I'm sure they thought that was high-minded, whereas today it doesn't read the same. Yeah, it comes it comes off a little bit as, and, and I'm apologizing already in advance, like wormhole keeping. <laughs> uh huh. And I will point out that Luoxana Troy is not a human. You know, she's a betazoid, so you could say, oh, well, she's not white. Well, she's phenotypically white. She's coded white. Coded white, yeah. Yeah, in sci-fi, there's certain characters that are coded white. I was talking to a person online who was talking about the problems of sci-fi shows and movies where, you know, certain alien races were darker and more beastly looking, and they have to be subtitled because we don't understand what they're saying, right? They're coded as black or they're orientalized in some way. They're a savage in some way. And the aliens that are coded white, you don't need to subtitle them. They all speak English. They're upright, stand tall. They use taller actors. They usually use white actors for them. They speak English. They speak proper English. So there is a way to code aliens even to be white or BIPOC. Right. Now, going back to the ending of the show, we saw that sweet moment with Troy and with Odo where he melts into a puddle in her lap. But we also saw in that moment as he's transitioning, we saw the trauma that he's been carrying from the shame of being a shapeshifter. But then Troy accepts Odo as he is. And that's where the touching moment comes in and Odo finds a smile. Going back to what I said earlier about I don't care what color you are, it also raised the question about beauty, about the hierarchy of beauty. In his shame, compared to Troy's pansexuality of hot people, right? For Odo's shame, it was a criticism of the hierarchy of beauty because it was talking about the trauma that comes from that. It was talking about self image and how devastating a poor self-image or having a bad self-image can be to a person and having to hide your real self just to fit in. And also, I don't know if the writer's meant to or not, but because he is a shapeshifter, it naturally lent itself to the reading of how you're treated when you're non-conforming, right? And we can read that in a lot of ways. And I think that in itself can be timeless because we might read that differently years from now because nonconforming can mean even more things later on, right? But the fact that he is a shapeshifter lends itself to those different readings. And because he is nonconforming, he was treated as a thing rather than a person, which is very much realistic, especially as transphobia is worse in a lot of ways today than it was. It's It's really fucking bad right now. I think about the fighter Fallon Fox, who's a trans fighter, who was able to get a bunch of fights. But now the transphobia is so bad, you have a fighter like Alana McLaughlin, and she had one fight. And after that, she can't get any more fights because it's a worse time now than it was for her friend Fallon Fox. And you know what's so dumb about that is that honestly, people look at the fights and they think that the person she was fighting is the trans person. Uh Uh-huh. And, and like have all these arguments that are backed with no thought, you know, uh, that episode you had with her after her fight is honestly, go listen to it. One of the 
best episodes I've ever heard about positionality. It's it's inspiring. But yeah, like transphobia right now, because also in my opinion, it's it's a gateway. It's an easy gateway to more hate. It's problematic because this character of Odo, he is that, but he's also a cop. So there's a lot of things where we could pull readings that are talking about oppression, but then other readings where he is the oppressor, right? But as somebody who is non-conforming, as being treated as a thing, because he's a literal shapeshifter, he was also asked to literally turn into things, to turn into furniture. And so one of the things we find out about him here is that he was held captive in a Bajoran lab before becoming a cop himself. So he was held captive before he started putting people in captivity, right? Absolutely. Cycles. Yes, yes. And it kind of also gave me Elephant Man vibes, right? The way he was discussing how they treated him, how they saw him, how they saw him as a freak of nature. So that really began to flesh out this cycle that started with Odo, where he's replicating what happened to him outwardly. Uh, Oppressors all have the ability to be the oppressed and vice versa. And like true, the true meaning of intersectionality, not, not the, the version that people claim on the internet holds that we are, we are made of so many different multitudes word to Walt Whitman that there are different sections of Odo that exist in there. So going back to Odo and Troy, they had this connection, even though they were coming from different places where they both felt like who they are wasn't good enough. That's why Ambassador Troy has to try to be larger than life, change her hair color, because just being plain old Troy doesn't seem good enough for her, right? And so in this moment, they could both take off their shields, reveal their true form, and just accept each other the way they are. So this idea of not being good enough and that whole scene of them having to deal from different directions, not being good enough and having to put on a mask and performing as a social worker, Scott, what do you think about that? Everyone masks and everyone has a performance as a form of protection and people do it in many different ways. And as a social worker, that sort of protection of masking is something that I see every single day of differing levels. People afraid to to open up, people afraid to share, people afraid to switch to their codes that they're comfortable with, people afraid to be themselves, how they may be judged revealing these things and as we've pointed out earlier in some in some instances that can make people literally unsafe you know with with Luoxana Troy not so much with Odo could be but you know when when I interact with you know in in Baltimore you know LGBTQ BIPOC skateboarders and stuff like that that sort of stuff can be dangerous. It's it really is hard out here for people to be their true selves. And it it, it breaks my heart. You know, self-love, self-care is revolutionary. 
and true authenticity, free of to be free to to be that is so special and so beautiful and so subversive and that we're taking these gigantic steps back for so many people to have that. Uh, it really does break my heart. What was also interesting about both of them is, I don't know if it was intentional, but they're also peak forms of masking in different ways. In Odo, you have masking and performing as peak masculinity, right? He identifies not only as a man, but the supreme authority, this police, right? Police, military are very masculine types of professions and roles. Whereas in Ambassador Troy, not only in diplomacy, but even herself from the way she performs, she's peak femininity, not just in sexuality, but from the way she dresses, even the whole speech about why she does what she does. Like basically peacocking, she has to be as feminine as possible. And so that's also interesting that they both have to perform these genders in their absolute forms because not doing that doesn't feel good enough. There's an insecurity that who they are, they won't be accepted. And especially maybe for Odo, not accepted not only as a person, but as a man. And for Ambassador Troy, as a woman, especially as she's aging. Absolutely. I just got really, I just got really uh, sad and upset for a moment, but that's okay. Having a real moment. I mean, the way that it ended, it wasn't like all sha-la-la-la, everything is all good with those two characters, right? It just ended tender. Yeah, it ended tender. Uh, unlike our man T.S. Eliot, it didn't end in a whimper. It just <laughs> ended. And then it went to the puppy AI dog. <laughs> yeah, which I have so many thoughts about, especially the things that we were talking about uh, last week about Elon Musk and Neuralink and and AI and and you really turned my head on a bunch of these things about aggregate collection. But the puppy dog AI, he's doing good. He's he's the best boy. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. Remember to give the Southpaw Network a stellar review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing, support us on Patreon. You can find all pertinent info at southpawpod.com. Scott, what are we watching next week? We're watching Dramatis Personae, and it's just getting ready for the finale. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, no, it was another filler episode. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> all right, then. Until next time. Da-da-da-da.